Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone. Believe it or not, it's our third birthday here at TVP. To celebrate, we have with us Annie Duke, our first guest who kicked off this whole project three years ago. And coincidentally, this is also her third appearance on the pod. Juan caught up with Annie to discuss her newest book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, including why quitting is so difficult, why it's the most powerful tool for any decision maker, the difficulties of thinking and expected values over time, at what age children can be taught the importance of quitting, and to contextualize all of this, what sort of tools, if any, could help Putin in quitting from what appears to be a very bad decision. Enjoy. Annie Duck. Welcome back to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I mean, I, I broke my wrist, but other than that, I'm good. Oh, no. What happened? <clears throat> oh, I was playing tennis, and I went for a very high ball poach, and I hit a winner and then fell on the ground and broke my wrist. So I'm out till about five. I, I still have about three more weeks to go before I can oh. play. If you hit a winner, I thought that you had very mixed feelings. You were feeling very um, confused about how to feel about the whole outcome of the situation. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I'm proud that I hit a winner. but <laughs> I'm sad that I'm out for five weeks. I would go for the ball again. I mean, it was a perfectly good poach. I just lost my balance. That's all. But it's fine. It's as as broken wrists go. It's not that bad. I don't need surgery. So that's that's the that's the really important thing to know. Yeah. Well, we're really sorry that that happened to you. Um, for regular listeners to our podcast, you don't need an introduction. And I actually, I'm not sure if you know that this podcast has been around for three years, and the reason that it came to existence it's because of you. No, I definitely don't know that. Well, we I don't know if you remember this, but back in, I think it was April of 2019, you gave us very kindly an hour of your time to discuss thinking in bets. Yeah. It was an interview for the, the Value Perspective blog when the yep. podcast didn't. And we recorded that interview so that we could write the, the blog. And we came with that, like everything that you mentioned made so much sense to us that we decided that we wanted to explore in more depth the, the, the how to make better, better decisions under uncertainty. Oh. And three years later and 60 episodes or something, here we are. 
And so you've been twice on our podcast and this is the third time that you come and you're coming to discuss your latest book and what we can learn from that book, which is very powerful in the context of decision making. So thank you very much. So for those that don't know you, can you provide us with a little bit of an introduction? Sure. <clears throat> That's a nice thing to know. I did not know this. Well, I'm happy that you've had 60 episodes for se- in small part because of me. Uh, yeah. So just real quick, I started off as an academic I did five years worth of PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania in cognitive science. And then right at the end, I got sick. And so I had to take a time off. So I took a, I was taking a year off from graduate school and I found my way to poker as a way to make money. And turned out I had a knack for it. I was pretty good at it. And I ended up not going back to graduate school, not finishing as ABD, as they say, all but doctored. And, um, Played poker for 18 years, retiring in 2012. Uh, Was lucky enough to win some world championships along the way. So that was fun. But in 2002, I started getting asked to speak to groups about, well, the first group asked me to speak about how poker might inform their thinking about risk. I uh, talked a little bit uh, around that topic in the sense that uh, I was talking about how poker can inform the way that whether you're in the losses or in the gains will affect your risk attitudes, mm-hmm. which I thought was a more interesting topic for them. They seem to like it. I, in that moment, remembered that I really love teaching. Um, and I did, you know, I had a very academic side of me, which I liked. Um, and I decided I wanted to sort of dive deeper into that conversation between poker and cognitive science. So started giving more talks. I started getting referred, you know, by people and so I started giving more talks and, you know, eventually started getting asked to do consulting and I started teaching poker also, actually, by the way, because I just really wanted to get back into teaching. In 2012, I retired from poker, uh, started doing speaking and consulting somewhat full time, but also started uh, a nonprofit called the Alliance for Decision Education in there. And then decided I really wanted to write this book, Thinking in Bets, which I did, followed it with How to Decide, and then my latest book, Quit, and then made my way back to the University of Pennsylvania, where I now teach effective decision-making in the executive ed program there. And uh, in the fall of 2022, just recently, I re-enrolled as a graduate student, and I'm now finishing my PhD with Phil Tetlock and Barb Meller. So for those who don't know, Phil Tetlock is the author of Super Forecasting. And I had done a bunch of research with him during the pandemic because I'm active in a couple of labs there. Uh, So I'd done a bunch of research with him during the pandemic. It resulted in four pretty large scale studies. The results looked pretty good. It was training people to become better uh, forecasters in in a variety of ways. And he said, you know, you could just write these up and make these a dissertation. So here I am. I'm going to hopefully be defending in the spring. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Many congratulations. Yeah, like weird, you know, that's a good lesson about quitting, by the way, is the things you quit, you can often go back to. That's very true. You are a good friend of Ted Sidus, I believe. And he has a fantastic podcast. And he did this episode on neg- negotiations with Professor Dalian King. Do you know him? It was a, a great episode. And in that specific instance, King was explaining how his biggest failure as a teacher had been so far to make his students understand and act on the importance of walking away on any negotiations. And he had many different approaches, even threatened them with failing them and not even that 
worked on his students. And by the time of recording of that episode, Kane was saying he had stopped trying to make them do it, and he was trying to think about how to approach it. And I don't know what happened. Oh, I have then. some news for him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So why is quitting so difficult? So uh, we can think about, so the way that we kind of judge ourselves is in comparison to the goals that we have um, or to some sort of benchmark. So in the simplest sense, if you bought a stock at 50 and it's trading at 40, the benchmark is 50 and you're short of it, right? You're in the losses. But there's other ways that we benchmark ourselves as well, right? Like, so uh, so we can think about in the losses. In that particular case, you have like a, you could have a physical ledger that you were writing, you know, your PL, your actual PL. And what you would see is that cognitively you would be in the losses $10. And also on your PL, you would be in the losses $10. But the, that feeling of being in the losses is a cognitive phenomenon that doesn't always line up with your PL. So I'll give you another simple example of that. If I buy a stock at 50, it goes up to 75 and then it goes down to 60. I'm cognitively in the losses, even if on the PNL, I'm in the gains. Does that make sense? Okay, so now then we can also have goals, right? So if we're going into a negotiation, we have some sort of goal for how that's gonna turn out. That's our benchmark and anything short of that now we're in the losses okay so this idea of being in the losses becomes really important for why we won't quit because uh when, whenever we open up a mental account for something when we get in the losses it's only if you close the account in other words if you quit that you can't actually recover those losses that you can't wipe that loss off the books again co the cognitive books right so um you can think about this moment of quitting as I'm failing, but if I quit, I have failed. As long as you keep going, there's some chance that you can recover the cause, right? So that's kind of like the broad. So if you wanted to think about an umbrella of like what's going on, that, that would broadly be what's going on. Now, it turns out that there is a lot of cognitive biases that kind of line up into that space, that fill that space that bias us against quitting, a lot of which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard about, like you can see how sunk cost fits in with what I just said, right? You've got time, effort, and money that you've sunk into something. And it's only when you walk away that you have this feeling of having wasted that time or wasted that money, or maybe not being able to recover that, that effort that you put into it. Uh, that's a fallacy because what we should care about is it worth it to put the next bit of effort or the next bit of money into it going forward and what you've already sunk into it actually shouldn't enter into the equation at all we can talk about that more but and then there's endowment there's issues of identity there's status quo bias omission commission bias opportunity cost optimism bias like and then this broad problem of escalation of commitment so essentially when you look at that the the deck is really stacked against us when it comes to quitting and if I had to sort of put it into a, a nice little bucket, it's um, when we when it's correct to quit, it's still uncertain whether you would actually fail if you continued or whether you might succeed, as with all decisions, right? It's a forecast of the future. 
so that's problem number one. And then problem number two is we don't like to close mental accounts and the losses. And there's all sorts of ways we get into that sort of cognitive uh, state of being in the losses, and then we won't walk away. Um, very early in your book, you talk about grit as a concept that goes in opposition to quitting. And also the- Yeah, well, I'm just, let me just interrupt. It's not an opposition to quitting. The problem is we think it's an opposition to quitting. It's the okay. same decision. It's just a stick or quit decision anytime that you're pondering something, but we think about them in an opposition, which I think is part of the problem. So anyway, now continue. <laughs> yeah, okay. sorry. Uh, thank you very much for making that clarification. Uh, but the other thing that, the other thing that you point out very early in the book is how stories and narratives or what we hear from people that have been winners in the past is this. And the one thing that they have in common is that they have a lot of perseverance. They persevere, they never quit despite the sure. obstacles. Yeah. Uh, so how do you think about that in the context of the importance of also having a mental model to quit? So as I said, grit and quit are the same decision. We don't think about them that way. We think about them as opposing forces. One's a virtue, one's a vice. I don't need to tell you which one's a virtue. We know, because if I called you a quitter, I, I think you would think I was calling you a loser. So, um, you know, perseverance is sort of an act of heroism, right? I mean, that's kind of how we think about it. It's, it's when we talk about building character, we talk about grit. So how do we think about why these two things need to live together? So let's first of all, go back to your point, right? Which is, it is true that anybody who has succeeded at something has also stuck to it. That is true, right? But it's solipsistic. It's a, it's just recursive. So anyone who has stuck to something, anyone who has succeeded has stuck to something. The problem is that that's true in retrospect and we turn it into something we think is true prospectively, that if you stick to things, you will succeed. But that is not true. What is true, and by the way, Angela Duckworth, who wrote the book Grit, I highly recommend that you go ahead and read that book. It's a great book. She she would agree with this. It's not that if you stick to things, you'll succeed. It's that if you stick to things that are worthwhile, you'll succeed. Even when they're hard, even when you face obstacles, if you stick to things that are worthwhile, you shall succeed. But what will make you not succeed is sticking to things that aren't worthwhile. Okay. In fact, sometimes that really puts your life in danger, right? When people continue up Everest it, in conditions where you should not be continuing, they're very gritty, but that is not the road to success. That's the road to dying on top of that mountain, right? Okay, so the idea is this, that it, let's think about it. We can think about this from like the standpoint of an investment portfolio, right? Is that you want to sample a whole bunch of stuff and then you want to concentrate your capital on the things that are working and quit all the rest. That is the actual road to success. When we think about quitting, we think it's going to slow our progress. It's going to impede our progress to be, being successful. But that's only true if you quit things that are worthwhile. What will actually impede your progress is sticking to things that aren't worthwhile. Because when you're sticking to things that aren't worthwhile, 
that is time and energy and money and attention that you can't put toward things that are worthwhile. If you are on a path where you are not gaining ground toward your goals or enough in comparison to other things you might be doing, not switching, not quitting and going and doing something else is, is actually going to stop you from succeeding. So if you want to get to where you want to go faster, you have to be both quitty and gritty. It's about figuring out what's worthwhile and what isn't. And then you want to take these two things together, which really are the same decision, and stick to the stuff that's worth sticking to and literally quit, not only quit everything else, but quit them as quickly as possible. Find out fast, get it off your books, go do something better. I think that uh, something that you mentioned in your book and is something that came related to on that podcast with that side as well, is that successful people quit a lot. Yes, they, they never do one specific path all, all the way. Yeah, I mean, we could think about, I mean, we could think about this across the board, right? Like, so let's take salespeople, right? The most successful salespeople qualify out their leads quickly. They, want, they actually want to do that because they're concentrating their grittiness because salespeople are very gritty. They're concentrating their grittiness on the leads that matter, on the ones that are actually going to close. And they're trying to qualify everything out early besides that, right? So you want to have this very fat tailed distribution, like quit fast and then stick to everything else pretty long. If you think about investors, um, you know, uh, the, the best investors, and I'm not talking about retail investors who probably should be indexing the market and just holding. Um, I'm talking about people whose opinion is a good opinion, right? About the market, the most successful investors are putting things in their portfolios and then they're selling the stuff that goes against their thesis and they're trying to do that pretty quickly. And they're holding or concentrating capital on this stuff that is working. So uh, a good example of that would be to take somebody who's uh, say an early stage venture investor right? They're buying lots of options. They're investing in a lot of companies early. And then what are they doing? They're figuring out which of these companies am I supposed to buy up at A, follow, you know, buy more at B, buy more at C. And that's not every single company. So from, from I mean, one of the things that we need to understand is that that is a form of quitting, right? In a situation where once something's in your portfolio, you can't let it go. What is the quit? The quit is I'm not concentrating capital into this set of companies, which is going to be most of them. And I am concentrating capital. That's the grit um, over into this set of companies. And they're trying to do that really, really well, right? Because the initial investment is made under high uncertainty. As they start to collect that new information, they're going to quit. They're going to quit fast, right? Think about um, Silicon Valley, right? The idea of agile software development. So really good implementation of the idea of quitting. Right. We're going to try a bunch of stuff. We're going to see whether customers like it. And if they don't, we're going to stop. And if they do, we're going to continue. So they're creating a minimum viable product. So they don't put very much effort into something. They're trying to figure out what's the minimum we can do to get the information we need to know whether we should quit this or whether we should start to concentrate our capital on this capital being time, attention, you know, human resources of, of the coders, so on and so forth, right? So that is also a very good example of that. Um, it's really what scientists do, right? You're exploring lines of research. It does. It's not fruitful. You say, I'm abandoning that. I'm going to go over. I'm going to try this other thing. 
Um, so it's true whether you're in product management, product development, sales, uh, you know, really if you're a chief strategy officer, right? Like you have to be testing things out all the time. If you're in marketing, that's what's an A-B test. It's just a plan to quit. Mm. I've got two ideas. I'm going to test both of them. I'm going to quit the one that doesn't, maybe I'm going to quit both of them because maybe neither of them will work out, but I know that there's quitting built into my plan there. And what you don't want to do is, is pursue one that actually was kind of a dud, right? You want to quit it. Um, so I think this goes across like everything that you do. And by the way, probably most, most obviously in something like poker where folding a hand is quitting and elite players fold way more than other people do. And it's a big piece of their success. In your book, you have written one of the most powerful lines in all of your books. And this is my humble opinion. Okay, Juan. <laughs> uh, I open quotes. You said, if I had to skill somebody up to get them to be a better decision maker, quitting is the primary skill I would choose because the option to quit is what allows you to react to the changing landscape. Can you please elaborate on why this could be the most powerful tool in any decision yeah. So it's a little partly, by the way, because of the professor who said they couldn't get their students to quit, which I'm not surprised about. Um, okay, so here's the problem that we have as decision makers. We'll go back to thinking in bets for a second. So this is why this is a good follow-up to that book. Um, so thinking in bets was all about the problem we have making decisions to start things. Mm -hmm. So what happens when we're making a de decision to start things, whether it's like hiring an employee, taking a job, getting married, uh, deciding, uh, you know, if we're, we want to start, create a startup or invest in a startup, if I want to, you know, play a musical instrument, it doesn't matter. Whatever decision that I make is going to be made under conditions of uncertainty. Sometimes more, sometimes less. The uncertainty is going to come from two sources. One source is going to be just plain old luck. So uh, I can make a decision that's going to work out 80% of the time. And by definition, it means it's not going to work out 20% of the time, just by definition. And I don't have any control over when I'm going to observe that 20%. So that's just luck. Um, the pandemic, that was luck, right? It affected a, a whole bunch of decisions that people had made in terms of the way that they turned out. And obviously, literally, nobody had any control over that, right? It just happened. All right. So now we can think about the second source of uncertainty, and that's uh, the quality of the information that you have that's being inputted into the decision. And the quality of that information is affected by two things. One is just hidden information, that the information that we have is incomplete. And like we know very little in comparison to all there is to be known. Uh, and then in terms of our own information, it's riddled by cognitive bias, which we know. So it's things like confirmation bias, for example, as you're trying to think about how to construct the decision, that's also going to affect the quality of the information that you're inputting into this. So you have these two problems, right? Okay, so, but we decide things nonetheless, because we have to. There's pretty much no decision you'll ever make where you have perfect information. Um, and, you know, thinking in bets was all about embracing that and saying, okay, that's fine. Because here's the reason why quitting is so important. If you're making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, what that means is that after you've started something, 
there will be information discovery that occurs. I'm going to find out there's a pandemic as an example. Um, I'm going to have that feeling, which I'm sure you've had one of, I wish I knew then what I know now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Like all the time. So that's that feeling of like, Ooh, I discovered new stuff after I started this. So the question is, if you're going to discover a whole bunch of new information after you make a decision, how do you deal with that? Well, you can quit when that information is bad news. And in fact, the option to quit, that option that we all have been given, is what makes decision-making under uncertainty like something that we can even do, right? Like we can make decisions relatively quickly in comparison to our lack of knowledge and how much luck is involved in the outcome. Because after we find out new information and that information is bad news, we have the option to quit. So this is the most important, I think, skill that people need to have, which is when, you, when you're getting signals from the world post-starting something, you have to be really good at recognizing when it's the appropriate time to quit, right? Which is a forecasting problem. It's looking into the future, just as the starting decision is a forecasting problem. I'm trying to figure out among these options, which, which thing do I forecast to be the highest expected value? To is going to cause me to gain the most ground toward my goals, given what it's going to cost me, right? That's what I'm thinking when I start things. That is what I also need to think about when I stop things. Uh, so that will also be a forecast into the future. And that's where the problem is, is that the quitting decision uh, is itself made under uncertainty. In other words, when it's correct to quit, it will not be 100% that things will work out poorly, if it were 100% that things will work out poorly, we could apply that to climbing Everest, you'll be dead. Mm. So you should be you should be making that decision long before it's 100%. In fact, you want to make the decision when the expected value goes negative or uh, gets low enough in comparison to other things you might switch to. Um, and what that means is that it's just a really hard skill because you're asking people to quit when it's not 100% or it's not obvious that people ought to quit. And, and that's what the professor is finding out with the negotiation problem, right? Is that people are going to bang up against that until they know it's not going to work. In other words, uh, there has to be absolute failure that has occurred. And in fact, in order to avoid that, they might take terms that they shouldn't be be just because they want to, they don't want it. They want to know that did, could I have turned it around? Could I have made it work? Could I have not? So it's, it's, a, it's just an incredibly important skill to develop given the conditions under which we have to start things. When I was reading through the book, I, I kept nodding to a lot of the things that you were saying on the book. And I kept thinking how difficult it is to make the active decision to quit. And one of the variables that you mentioned, one of the things that one needs to consider, which is very important, is something that you have alluded to in your previous answer, which is this concept of expected value. And I was discussing the importance of that with my colleague, Andy Evans. Um, and he was saying, he actually said, well, why don't we, why don't we frame the following question to Annie to see, to see what she thinks. Are there any weaknesses of thinking purely on expected value terms? And 
he was approaching the question from the angle of when there is time involved or time becomes a factor. As in you are not judging one decision on a standalone basis, but there's a continuum and then things are interlinked. And then you might find yourself in a, in a situation where by quitting, you are all the time quitting. Does that, does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Uh, the answer is no, because you take that stuff into account. So expected value is looking at what are the gains over the time over time versus what are the losses over time. So uh, that can be things like time. And then there's something called implied equity. So when you're thinking about expected value, the way that I talk about it is relatively simple in the sense of, you know, you're flipping a coin. The coin is 50-50 you're going to give me $2 for every $1 that I risk. And so I'm making 50 cents on every flip, right? Um, because half the time I'm going to win $2. So that's a, a net gain of 50% 50, 50 of $2, which is a dollar. And um, half the time I'm going to lose a dollar, which is a net loss of 50 cents. Because um, half the time I'm going to lose a dollar and then I can subtract a dollar from... 50 cents from a dollar and I get a 50 cent expected value on each dollar. Now, what's important to note is that there is no flip on which I will make 50 cents uh, in an actual, like you'll, you're not gonna put 50 cents in my hand. This is what I'm going to make over time, right? So if I bet it 10,000 times, I'm going to make $5,000 because I'll make 50 cents on every dollar. Okay. So when we're thinking about expected value, we think about interlinking problems, right? So um, this is something that we think about in poker all the time. I hope I'm understanding your question. I'm trying to I'm trying to answer the question that I think you asked. Let's put it that way. Um, so if I make a bet right now, it might be a break-even bet if we just do that sort of coin flipping math right now. But it's actually a positive expected value because it creates equity for me going forward. So this is actually a really important concept to bluffing, right? So I could bluff you. And the bluff itself, that moment might not be positive expected value if we only consider what the probability of me winning this actual hand is, okay? But it is positive expected value because it's gonna make it harder for you to play against me in the future. In other words, if you catch me bluffing, even though I lose the hand, I get something out of it because it makes it harder for you to know the next time I bet that way, if I have a really good hand or I don't. Okay, so that's sort of, you can see sort of now over time that the decision I make right now, uh, I have to include, is that improving my equity going forward or hurting it going forward? And that would then get included into the expected value you know, equation. So, and you can see that also happening. That could happen like in parallel, like a decision I make could affect other decisions that I have going on at the exact same time. So, you know, in my books, I, you know, cause I'm not teaching people, you know, they're not like risk management books and I'm trying to just get people to start thinking about this concept of gains and losses, but obviously it's much more complex than that because uh, decisions are intertwined. So you mm -hmm. have to sort of make your guess at how those things are going to be intertwined. So this is actually a really important uh, negotiation concept, right? Which is. Uh, if I'm negotiating and I never walk away, 
that's really bad for me. Not just in the sense that I'm probably taking bad terms if I never break the deal, but also in the sense that it's reducing my expected value going forward because people then know I don't walk away from negotiations. And mm -hmm. so if I break a deal, it's actually really good for me to break a deal because then future people, I get a reputa reputational advantage for being a tough negotiator. And that puts people in a position where they're more likely to give me favorable terms, for example. Right. So, so I hope I, I hope that's the answer to your question. I, that's the one that I understood you asking, but I may have answered a completely different question. I don't know. No, no, no. I think that you absolutely did. Um, within the tools that are at your disposal to quit, there is this one that you mentioned in your book, which I, I, I personally think it's quite powerful. And I've heard Michael Mabusin coined coined that as the man overboard moment. I think that you have called that before in, in other occasions, the Ulysses contract. And in the book, you actually used another reference, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm going to get it wrong, the killer list. So it's, it, yeah, it's kill criteria. Kill criteria. Which gets combined with a Ulysses contract. I call it a pre-commitment contract in, the, in this particular book, but so kill criteria necessarily require a pre-commitment contract or a Ulysses contract. So let's go through like just step-by-step. Step. So a Ulysses contract is just a pre-commitment to a particular action. So a really simple example of that would be if I want to eat healthy, I can throw all the junk food out of my house. So in other words, I'm, I'm not leaving the decision to when I'm actually in the moment. I'm thinking about in advance what my goals are, what the things are that I'm trying to gain, and then um, setting uh, restrictions. I'm binding myself to that decision in some way. So that could be all the way from actually literally getting all the junk food out of your house to telling somebody, I could say to you, you know, Juan, I want to eat really healthy. So if you see me go for a donut, I want you to stop me. So that that would be a pre-commitment contract. And it also could just be like an advanced plan, right? So I could just make a commitment to myself that when I'm around junk food, I'm going to get an apple instead, right? So so there's, there's different things that you can do. Now, these pre-commitment contracts we know from the science work really, really well. Hmm. So, and why, why is it that it worked well? Well, this is actually a really big problem with quitting is that, uh, you know, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel laureate has a phrase, which is um, the worst time to make a decision is when you're in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and what he means by that is like when you're actually have an open box of chocolate sitting in front of you, it's really hard to make a good decision because then there's all sorts of things that have to do with like short-termism and that's when bias is going to be the greatest. And it's, we're really, uh, we're really in our own perspective, the things that we want to be true of the world. And it's harder for us to sort of get outside of that decision and see it in some sort of rational way. But when we're thinking in advance, we're actually much better at that. We're much better at, at um, um, actually thinking pretty rational, rationally about it. And, you know, this is, so, so now how does this relate to the quitting problem? So Barry Staw, who is just a giant in the field on this, problem called escalation of commitment said, you know, we have this intuition that when the world tells us, when we get signals from the world, 
that we ought to walk away from something that we will. You know, it's that idea of after we've started something, when we learn something new and it's bad news, that we'll react to it and we'll walk away. So that was what he said is that, you know, we have this intuition this back in the 70s. He pointed out this problem and he said, it's just not true. In fact, not only do we not walk away, we escalate our commitment to the cause. In other words, we increase our commitment to the cause, which is what you're seeing with these negotiation students, right? Is that they they keep go they keep going and sort of like changing their terms, just trying to close the negotiation out, right? So where pre-commitment contracts help us is that we can pre-commit to certain actions if we see those signals in the future. It makes a really big difference. What are the signals that we're looking for? Well, those are kill criteria. So kill criteria is basically a list of the things that you might see in the future that would tell you that it's time to walk away. So a simple implementation of that that I've done with portfolio managers is that uh, portfolio managers have the intuition that you know when you've done the quant work uh, and you have a thesis that you might be trading, um, that thesis is going to imply certain things about what you're what you're expecting of the world. And so they intuit that when the fundamentals move against them in a certain way, for example, that obviously they're going to get off the trade because their thesis implied certain things. And so they're, you know, when it goes against their thesis, they'll quit. And the answer is no, they will not. Um, and so what I've done with them is said, actually lay out, like, what does your thesis imply? Let's write it down and then let's figure out what could be happening in the world that would tell you that you ought to quit. So let me give you a super simple example of kill criteria. So I think uh, a lot of people um, bought crypto, let's say Bitcoin. A lot of people bought uh, Bitcoin because they thought their thesis was it would be a hedge against inflation. Now, I'm not saying everybody bought it for this reason, but there were a lot of people who bought it for that reason, that it was going to be a hedge against inflation. Okay, so look, when you buy it, I'm, I'm not saying whether that was a good thesis or not. Again, we make these decisions under conditions of uncertainty. And if you've never experienced uh, Bitcoin existing at a time when inflation is rising, you're making guesses at what the correlation between those two things were. So, okay, so I'm not going to quibble with the thesis. So now what happens is what happens when it is correlated with inflation? Do people sell? And I think what we saw was the answer is no. I mean, it went down, but I think out of necessity, right? Um, that people will come up with different rationalizations and different reasons. Well, I'm not really holding it for that reason, or I'm holding it because I think uh, it's actually like a tech play, or I don't know, whatever. They come up with different things. Now, let's imagine that you you had kill criteria in a pre-commitment contract, right? So the kill criteria would be something to the effect of, um, if I see inflation go up a certain amount and I see some correlation occurring to some degree, and you would define what that those were, a correlation to some degree with inflation, which I, would be enough for me to disprove my thesis, when that happens, I must sell. Hmm. And it just turns out, and Barry Staw has shown this, it just turns out that that makes you much better at cutting your losses when you've thought about it in advance before you're already in the decision. Yeah, I think that the, the best example that you gave in your book is going back to Everest and the three people that survived one of the tragedies, the fact that they actually followed 
the criteria to turn back when they realized that they were never going to make it to the peak in time yeah. to, to turn around. Yeah, so so there's all sorts of like really simple examples of, of kill criteria. One of them, by the way, is a stop loss order. Hmm. That's a kill criteria. Stop losses are something that I used in poker, which is like, I'm going to be terrible at deciding why I'm losing when I'm losing. So let me just in advance say, if I lose a certain amount, I'm just getting off this thing, right? Like I'm getting off the ride now. Um, so uh, another really simple example that you point out is uh, mountain climbing. So when people are uh, climbing mountains, they have something called turnaround times. And those turnaround times are essentially like stop losses. Like if I'm not at my final destination by this time, it doesn't matter where I am on the mountain, I have to turn around. So on Everest, on summit day, they have a turnaround time which is 1 p.m. So you leave camp four to go up the summit to the summit. And the rule is no matter where you are, whether you've made the summit or not, at 1 p.m. you have to turn around. Now, we know that people don't follow these all the time. Uh, they're not perfect because uh, people do die up on mount the mountain long past 1 p.m., but you're more likely to. And, and more likely to is a lot better in this particular in any particular situation. If you're more likely to quit when you're supposed to, you're obviously gonna have better outcomes over the course of your life. So there's a really great story of these three climbers, Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kasitsky, who were part of a climbing expedition. It was eight climbers, three Sherpas, and an expedition leader. And they were they had sort of become friends and were sort of climbing together. They had sort of formed their own little group. And they set out, It was this was in the 90s, they set out for the summit and in the 90s, expeditions for Everest were like really popular. So there's a lot of people on the mountain. Now, I also just want to set the stage to say that they've paid like 70 or $75,000 to do this expedition. So remember when we're talking about sunk cost problems, right? They've paid a lot of money to try to summit Everest and think about the time and the training, right? Mm -hmm. How much of their identity is tied into this, right? They've had to make these choices of like not spending time with their family Everybody knows they're trying to climb Everest. So they've got a lot of things stacked up against them that would make them keep going for the summit, even if the conditions weren't good to do so. True for anybody who's climbing that mountain. Oh my God, you know, like think about it. What's worse, like never thinking that you want to climb Everest or coming within 300 feet of the summit and not making it. Mm. Like obviously the second is so psychically painful, even though you climbed a lot. Because mm. again, it's like this sunk cost problem, right? So, um, so anyway, so they're, they're going up the mountain. It's really, really crowded because there's, there's like over 30 people trying to summit in the same day. And you kind of have to summit a little bit single file. So there's a traffic jam. So their expedition leader comes up behind them and Hutchinson stops the expedition leader and says, how long do you think it is until the summit? And the expedition leader says, well, I think it's three hours. The expedition leader now continues back up and Hutchinson holds tasking Kasitsky back and says, listen, we have a problem. We've been told that the turnaround time is 1 p.m. So that's the turnaround time for summit day. And the reason is that if you summit after 1 p.m., you're too likely to descend the mountain in darkness, which is like super dangerous. OK, so they said well, the turnaround time is 1 p.m. And he says it's already 1130. So by my calculation, three hours, we're not going to get till the summit till 2.30. So this is a very good example of forecasting, right? Is that he's standing on the mountain with these other two guys. They have lots of oxygen. They aren't exhausted. They're in fine fetter. 
right? They're totally fine. But he says, I can tell we're not going to get to the summit by 2.30. So we should turn around now. There's no reason to keep going at this point. He, you know, they have a little confab. It takes a little convincing, but they decide, yes, we're going to turn around and we're going to go back to camp four. And that's the end of the story. Now, what I say, like, it's obvious why you don't know who these climbers are, right? This is part of the problem with grit, right? It's not a heroic story, at least not as we sort of traditionally think about heroism. But the interesting thing is most people do know who these climbers are because they were part of the expedition that was chronicled in John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, mm -hmm. uh, and in the documentary Everest and in the movie called Everest. Uh, and they were part of Rob Hall's expedition, who quite famously got up to the to the uh, summit at 2 p.m. He's the one who told them it would be three hours, by the way. So he's a pretty mm -hmm. fast climber. He did manage to get there by two. Um, but notice an hour past the turnaround time, which he knew because he had said it. And then uh, Doug Hansen, his other client, got there at four, immediately collapsed and died. And then Rob Hall couldn't get back down the mountain and he perished on, on the, the summit as well. So, you know, what about these three climbers? They're in the book. Krakauer says they were the best decision makers on the mountain, but we mm. don't even remember them because yeah. we think about the people who persevere as the heroes of the story. But I want everybody to consider this for a second, you know, and following this turnaround time and following the kill criteria, these three climbers had to turn around when everybody else was continuing on. They had to be willing to be okay with the fact that they had spent $7,000, uh, $75,000 and they weren't going to succeed. They had to face the possibility that everybody else got up to the mountain just fine, summited and came back down, and they felt like idiots. They were facing all of that stuff, and yet they turned around anyway. So I would argue that that was actually the more courageous choice, personally. Yeah, no. no, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I actually read the, the book many years ago, and it's uh, it's a mind-blowing story, Project Very Sad as well. Yeah. We had Joe Sweeney from the Alliance for Decision yeah. Education podcast last year to talk about the importance of teaching young kids or kids at a younger age all of the tools to become better at decision making. Right. And so in the context of quitting, it's difficult. I, I was kind of thinking it's difficult to find the right balance to teach the importance of quitting, but also not to quit for the wrong reasons. So I wanted to ask you, what should be the right way to teach children this tool? And at what age do you think that should be the case? So, uh, I mean, I think you should start right away, <laughs> but I think a lot of this has to do with this idea of like, how do you get out of the decision, right? So I think that first of all, you definitely wanna have kill criteria exit criteria, quit criteria, whatever you want to call them. And you also want to have, I think, a quitting coach, which is someone to help you to see whether the thing you're that you're doing is still worthwhile or not. This is where I think for young children, parents beca can become very helpful. Where parents are unhelpful is that they have a bias towards sticking because we all mm -hmm. do. And so you know, like there's somebody told me such a great story about that his parents wanted him to uh, play a musical instrument. So they let him choose. And he chose the saxophone. I guess he thought it was cool. Um, and when he started playing it, it turned out like he just really hated the taste of the reed in his mouth. 
it was, there was just something about it that was really, really unpleasant, like really awful for him. Uh, and his parents, because they wanted him to build character, did not allow him to quit. And so now he doesn't play any musical instrument whatsoever because it was such a traumatic experience for him to have to keep going. So I think that, you know, in terms of being a quitting coach, you have to think about what is the thing you're actually trying to help the child to accomplish and communicate that well. So if I want you to play a musical instrument and you tell me the read is really bothering you, the correct response should be, if it's that bad, okay, but what instrument are you going to play instead? Hmm. Right? If they then come to you and make an argument that they're not musical and they're tone deaf, this actually happened to me, then it should be, okay, then what enrichment activity are you going to do instead? So that you make sure that they're, you know, that they're, they're accomplishing what it is that the musical instrument is supposed to accomplish. You're trying to help them to achieve as opposed to the saxophone being the goal itself. So this happened to me. I, I played piano. I was tone deaf for real. Um, I said to my mother, I'm terrible at this. I shouldn't keep doing this. She wouldn't allow me to stop. She made me do it for a year. And then as soon as I was free, I switched to gymnastics which was a much better activity for me. And I stuck to that till I was 14 years old. Like, you know, I was eight when this happened um, because I was a gritty kid. I just, <laughs> it was stupid for me to be playing piano. And I think that we lose sight of that. I think this is generally a problem with goals is that we set, we start out on something because we're trying to achieve something broader. And then we get stuck on the thing. Like it's the saxophone, not it's whatever you're trying to achieve through the enrichment that playing a musical instrument might bring you. And I think that if you can start thinking about that well, you can start to communicate that to your child well. And then when your child is doing something that you think is worthwhile and that they enjoy and they have a really bad day on the soccer pitch and they come off crying and say, I want to quit, you can say to them, and that's where kill criteria come in. I think that that was probably just a bad day. And everybody has bad days. But that doesn't mean that you should just quit right away. Let's actually think about how long, you know, how many games do you have to play in order for us to figure out if this is something that you just really hate, right? That it really isn't for you. Let's figure out how many games that is that you have to give it because there's a learning curve and, you know, at first you're going to be bad and then you're going to get better. So let's figure that out. So maybe you say like, let's just play this season. So maybe you do that and then say, what are your feelings going to be? What is your, you know, do you think you'll have scored a goal? Um, how are you going to feel about being part of a team, right? You can figure out like, what are all the things that you think would tell you that this is a good thing for you to keep doing? What are the things that would tell you that maybe it's not the right thing for you to keep doing? So you can literally set those out with your child and then agree that they're going to stick to it long enough to be able to get that information. And then once they get that information, we'll make a decision about whether you stick or quit. But part of that decision is going to be, what are you switching to? That's and, yeah. And, and wouldn't that be great if we all learned that lesson instead of being forced to play the saxophone when we hate it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ask you maybe a little bit of a cheeky question. So probably having to save face especially when stakes are very high and you have lots of eyes on you, makes the decision to quit more difficult. And yes. in the book, you make reference to the case of Alex Honnold, the climber, yeah. the free climber, who made the decision in 2016 to quit on the day that he had chosen to go um, El Capitan. 
Is that correct? The, yeah. It's a capital. So let's talk about a decision where the stakes are even higher. On the Russian invasion to Ukraine, what would help someone like Vladimir Putin to quit yeah, on anything that has, has not gone as he clearly expected? Yeah, nothing. I mean, this is the problem. So so interestingly enough, I mentioned Barry Stahl, who's this one of the, you know, this sort of generation of scientists who really started noticing this problem with escalation of commitment. And they all uh, appeared in the 70s. And that's not accidental because there was something very particular that was formative for them, which was the Vietnam War. Hmm. And this was a generation of scientists that saw America you know, just enmeshed in this war where there was not one single point where anybody thought that America was winning that war. I mean, it was very clearly from the get-go, just a completely losing proposition. And one which, um, you know, so, not just so much money was lost to that, but think about, you know, how many lives were lost to that war after the point they figured out that they weren't going to win it. And uh, there was something called the Pentagon Papers that came out at the time, uh, which was uh, essentially like internal like DOD papers where it became very clear that George Ball, who was the undersecretary of state at the time, had said, like, don't get started in this because you're not going to be able to stop. Like once you start a war, less victory, whatever victory is you you will not be able to get out of it. So they were actually quite, you know, this is this was the inspiration for that that set of scientists. And we can see everything happening here, right? So there's sunk costs. You spent a lot of money. There's also the really heartbreaking sunk cost of the lives lost. And, you know, General Tony Thomas, who, who uh, you know, in regards to Afghanistan, said he would talk to Gold Star parents who would say, go win this war because I don't want my child to have died in vain, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, as heartbreaking that, as that is, which it's obviously incredibly heartbreaking, It's but should the next child, should the next child die? Or, or do we have enough of a chance of actually achieving of our objectives that the next child should die? But it's very hard for us to think that way. So that's sort of the very classic sunk cost problem. Um, but then- you have this identity issue, you're like your national identity, right? How are people going to judge you? And the interesting thing is that the taxpayers fall for the sunk cost problem too. Like when people shut down public works projects, they're like, ah, oh, what a waste of taxpayer money. It's like, but they may be shutting it down so they don't waste a hundred billion more of your money. But it, we don't naturally think this way. So you're going to be, you've got this issue of external validity is what it's called, which is how are others going to judge you? And in this particular case, when you withdraw from a war without having achieved your objectives, you get judged very harshly, right? Um, so we saw that with the Vietnam War. It's part of the reason why people stay in it and try to sort of win it. But look even what happened with Afghanistan, right? Which was three presidents before Biden had promised to get us out of that war, mm. including, by the way, George W. Bush, who started it, right? He he promised to get out of it, but we didn't. Obama promised to get out of the war, us out of the war, did not. Trump promised to get us out of the war, he did not. Biden promised to get out of the war, he did. And people are mad. Mm. 
they're mad. And, and you could see what got revealed when, when we exited was that we weren't ever winning the war anyway. Right. Because it was like three days and the Taliban was, you know, took it back over. But it took us 20 years when I don't think there was a single person who thought we were achieving our objectives in Afghanistan. I mean, I think people felt like we're achieving the objectives in Iraq. I'm not saying whether you agree with the objectives or not. I think that people felt like we were achieving our, but certainly not in Afghanistan at any point. So now let's go to Vladimir Putin. So. The interesting thing with Putin is that it's worse than America in Afghanistan because we had allies that were there with us. So we weren't standing against literally the whole world. Mm. Putin at best has some people who are tolerating what's going on, but he doesn't actually have any allies here. He's just, you know, the West is against him you know, the people who might be in his coalition are just sort of like, we're not happy about it, but I guess we won't totally say that out loud. His political identity is obviously embroiled in it. His, his, the national identity of Russia is that's, you know, he has had stated, stated objectives, which is taking the whole thing. He was planning to take Kiev in a few days Obviously, there is not a single measure under which he is winning this war, that things are going well. And people keep talking about off-ramps for him. And if you study the science, like what off-ramp? He's supposed to abandon all everything that he's put into it and just admit that like the West wins. See, I mean, this is the problem, right? Is that it's very hard for us to walk away. And again, when you think about as an example, like withdrawing from the Afghan, you know, the war in Afghanistan, there's no doubt you're going to get tons of flack for that. There's no doubt that people are going to be really mad. And so to do it anyway, to finally actually follow through on that promise was actually, you know, pretty spectacular from acquitting from the biases against quitting. So there's just, there's too many things lined up there that will make it pretty impossible for him to leave. So what are the conditions under which Russia would leave? I mean, I suppose if they have no more people, they would do it. They seem Mm -hmm. to be getting close to that. They've either conscripted everybody or they've all fled, right? If um, Vladimir Putin is deposed, because you you can separate Russia's identity from Putin here. So if you if you get rid of the the person who whose identity is tied to this war. Russia then can save face because that's what mm. you need to create and they can they can then get out right so if there's some sort of internal regime change in Russia they would be able to get out of the war but as long as Vladimir Putin is in power I just don't see it from from a scientific standpoint an ability to be able to walk away from that at last again completely running out of resources but I think if they completely run out of resources he gets deposed anyway so I yeah. think that that becomes, you know, sort of recursive <laughs> anyway. And it's just, it's the problem. It's like, I mean, one of the things when it comes to war in particular, one of the things that I really say, you know, that I've learned from this book, from my own research is be careful what you start hmm. because it's re- once you start it, it's really, really, really hard to stop. 
Uh, it, it goes to the um, to that segment of the book when you're referring to when you create or you build your, this association with an identity. And if you're very loud about that identity, then it's very difficult for you to remove yourself from it to the point that maybe it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, as a, you know, the hardest thing to walk away is who, sorry, the hardest thing to walk away from is who you are. So how do things become part of our identity? Well, first of all, like obviously if they're very public facing. So for me, you know, I played poker on television. So uh, being a poker player was very much part of my identity, but that's really true for any career that we have, right? Like I'm a doctor. We don't say I practice medicine. I mean, some people do, but mostly you say I'm a doctor. So the things we do can become part of who we are, particularly when they're public, which our careers are. And particularly, here's another one, when uh, our beliefs make us stand out from the crowd. So when we hold beliefs that make us stand out from the crowd, it becomes much more part of our identity. Because one of the ways that we just naturally define ourselves as human humans is through uh, both belongingness and distinctiveness. So belongingness is uh, belonging to a group that, you know, that group identity, the group of poker players, for example, and then distinctiveness, which is how am I different from other people? So we, we can see this pretty clearly in like politics, right? Like you belong to one political party, which stands you in opposition. You're distinct from the other political parties. Right. So this this becomes very much part of our identity under these circumstances. Um, and so whenever identity gets involved, it becomes very, very hard to quit because we're really asking you to then quit who you are to say that that is no longer what I am. Or even when it comes to a, a belief, it's like to admit that that was wrong is another way to have to realize a loss. And so what happens is that when the world gives you signals that you ought to walk away from who you are, we're very good at rationalizing away those signals because it creates too much dissonance for us, right? Like the world is, and the world and us, like I'm now in some sort of fight with the world and it becomes really too hard to, to resolve the dissonance. So let's think about how this manifests in a couple of ways. So first of all, on the distinctiveness thing, I'll give you a, like a super simple example Let's say that uh, you used to believe that Pluto was a planet. Mm -hmm. the, the question is, does that, does that really define your identity? Not well, really. Well, unless I'm, I'm an astrologist and I went publicly saying that it was, no? Not, not really, because everybody believes it. Okay. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you're not arguing. When we all thought Pluto was a planet, were you arguing with anybody? No. Was there anybody saying, oh, no, Pluto? No, everybody was saying Pluto was a planet. So when everybody's doing it, it's not really sort of identity defining. But what if you believe the earth is flat? Mm -hmm. Now that's identity defining, right? So you, you, have now, you now belong to a very specific group of people who believe the earth is flat as distinct from consensus. So you now stand out from the crowd. So now let's think, what happens when a bunch of people tell you that Pluto isn't a planet anymore? Scientists, obviously. Everybody's like, yeah, I guess I was wrong. Because what, what are you giving up to that, right? Like nothing, like it's, right? But when people tell you, no, the earth is not flat, it's round. What do you have to give up to accept that? Hmm. Now you have to give up a lot. 
So, you know, so just because I, you know, I use flat earthers as an example where people might think, well, they aren't the best critical thinkers anyway. Um, I, just to sort of alarm everybody and it doesn't matter. It's not a critical thinking problem. It's just the way your brain is wired problem. I mean, thinking that the earth is flat is a critical thinking problem, but not abandoning the belief is different. So John Bashirs and Katie Milkman uh, did actually a great study on stock analysts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like, okay, now we're talking about critical thinkers, right? These people are pretty rational, one would hope. And they basically took like 6,000 forecasts that they had made earnings, earnings estimates that they had put out. And they wanted to understand what happens when they make an estimate, let's say for the end of the, the next quarter, and the estimate just doesn't bear out. The actual earnings are very, very different than the estimate that the analysts made, than the forecast. So they divided these 6,000 forecasts into two categories. One was consensus and one was non-consensus. So this is, you know, one is Pluto <laughs> and, and the other type is flat earth. Okay. So now they looked at the actual earnings and said, okay, so what happens when these are conflicting with the, with the forecast? And it turned out that when they were Pluto kind of forecasts where like it was totally in consensus, everybody agreed and the, the actual earnings um, didn't bear that forecast out, they would change their mind. And when you looked at their updated forecast for the next quarter, they would change in the direction of what the new information was, like a rational person. So that's not that surprising. But what happened when they made like flat earth kind of forecasts, like when they were way out of consensus, they, were, they made a forecast that was really, really different and made them stand out from the crowd. Now, when the actual earnings didn't bear that out, they doubled down on the forecast. Hmm. They didn't update anymore. Hmm. So that's alarming. because they had a financial incentive to be accurate. So they're really going against their own financial incentive here in order to sort of stick to their guns on what their belief was before. But again, only when it's a real, when it makes it part of your identity. Yeah. 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 Kathy Milkman, you made the reference to her in your book as well. She has a great podcast. She wrote a great book. How to change. Yeah, we, we've, we've actually invited her twice to the podcast, but she's been extremely busy. And yeah. we really hope that she will come around at some point in the future. And yeah, I'm conscious of time. Uh, and I could keep asking you so many questions about your new book and how to think about quitting because it, it was, it is a fascinating topic. So important for what we do. And I had never really thought about it as one of the most important things when, when you're trying to become a good decision maker. So thank you very much for that. Last time we asked you, uh, one of our closing questions, a book recommendation, and you recommend that Maria Konecaba's The Biggest Bluff. And actually, thanks to you, Maria was on the podcast. Oh, great. And so I was wondering if you could provide us with a new recommendation on what to read. Should, should it be something new? I don't know. Um, well, <laughs> it, your books, it can be something that you've read recently. It can be anything, really. So, well, I think I think people should read The Power of Regret by Dan Payne mm-hmm. selfishly because I think it fits well with, with my book. <laughs> um, so, you know, we think about regret as a really bad thing and, uh, you know, like an investment for like financial advisors, they'll do like regret minimization strategies. 
which I personally think exacerbates loss aversion, which is a problem. And he's really arguing that like regret is, you know, has a lot of good stuff that is associated with it. Like it's how we learn. It's how we figure out what our values are. What are the things that we want to do in the future? Um, and we become better people for, you know, the things that we regret in a lot of ways. So I, I think that uh, that's, that's a really good one. I think people should read that. The other one that, that just sort of, again, just kind of like philosophically fits with my book uh, is Range by David Epstein, um, yeah, which is wonderful. Good, that's a, yeah, that's a great yeah, The power of being a generalist in a specialist world. And then I have to recommend Grit. If people haven't read it yet, I mean, I assume, I mean, most people, I mean, it's a huge bestseller, but I want to be really clear. Like, I'm not telling people you shouldn't stick to things. I'm like a super gritty human. Um, Of course you should stick to things. It's just, you you have to understand both sides of the equation. You know, I I mean, I, I think that chapter one of quit is titled the opposite of a great virtue is also a great virtue. And I think that that's the best way to think about grit and quit as they stand together that they're both really important for success. So I think that I would be committing malpractice if I didn't also recommend Grit by Angela Duckworth, because I think you need to read both. That's that's fantastic. Annie, thank you very much for coming back to the Value Perspective podcast. Many congratulations on your latest book. It was fascinating, and we totally recommend our listeners to read it. And congratulations for um, doing a full circle and finishing your PhD. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I haven't finished yet, but hopefully soon. <laughs>